podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hey, I'm back with two new chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. If you're just tuning in for the first time to this audio novella, go back some 30 chapters back. This is an audio novella that I've been sharing and recording in process as I go, as I write it. So we're out here. We're out here in the weeds, okay? We're still in the grief grappling process, and we're actually pretty close to the end of the book. I'm still figuring it out, you know, but I have the plan. I see it. I see the finish line. And something that I just want to share is, or name or ask really is that I've been, when I started this project, got a lot of messages, um, especially when the story was um, on the up and up and like very peak experience erotic. And since we've been in this, this grief space, it's gotten a lot quieter. So are people still listening? Are we okay? Um, I am writing the novel. I'm as a writer, really balancing um, writing it in a way that like serves the medicine of like the truth of what the novel wants to be and like what it's going to be as a healing process or what it is as a transmission. But it is also my goal for it to be enjoyable to listen to, to be entertaining, to be relatable, to be medicine for you as the listener. So if you're having an experience um, in this later part of the book, I still would like to hear about it if you have any feedback um, cause I hope that you're still around and still listening. Um, even if you may be quieter, but yeah, let me know, send me a message. Let me know that you're tuning in and what your experience is. Um, the reflections do mean a lot to me, but I also, um, yeah, I'm just wondering why it's all quiet. Um, yeah. So I think I'll just leave it at that and say um, the normal thing, what the warning or content warning that this is a story for adults. Please listen responsibly. It's not suitable to listen to while children are around. Um, Yeah, let's get into it. And if you want to contact me, you can find me on Instagram at Sabrina Monarch. That is my only Instagram. Please beware of the scammer accounts impersonating as me under slightly different usernames. You can email me Sabrina at monarchastrology.com or contact me however else you do. All right. Enjoy. Chapter 30. 2017, my 25th birthday recently come and passed. I have a flight to Denver, Colorado to do an interview weekend at Naropa and Boulder as part of my application process. 
the night before my flight, I'm in my bedroom thinking, I don't want to just stay at like a Best Western or something. I should get an Airbnb and have an experience. I go online and find something aesthetic with good reviews, a room in a house with the host, a local experience. A few minutes later, I receive a phone call from a number I don't recognize. Hello? Hey, it's Jake from the Airbnb you just booked. I was going to message you, but I thought I'd just call since it's not too late yet. I hope that's all right. I am already assured by the confidence of his voice. I have a secret motivation for wanting to move to Boulder for school that I hide behind my more professional or logical reasons. The alternative, more spiritual psychotherapy program, of course. Aiden lived in Boulder before Olympia, and it was doing a yoga training there that had him grow a few inches taller and suddenly become athletic and build. I wouldn't easily admit it, but seeking to move to Boulder is a way to follow a vapor, to chase a source of who had once fulfilled me, while also physically running away from the town that I might run into him in. In my fantasy, I imagine Colorado is full of broad-shouldered athletes, positive, sunny, ambitious, willing people. Already, Jake's voice is a confirmation of my imagination. So, are you a soothsayer or something? He asks me. How do you know? The picture of you with the crystal ball. Oh, I laugh remembering that that was my Airbnb photo. I'm an astrologer. Rad, he says. Well, the reason I'm calling is because I wanted to know when you're coming in tomorrow. Around 8 p.m., I say. I'm going out tomorrow night, he says, with a friend, and I've got this system set up where I could give you a code to enter your room and you could check yourself in if you'd like. You can totally do that. Or, if you're interested... You could meet me and my friend at the bar um, where we'll be around the time you get in. I'll meet you at the bar, I say, excited my wish for an experience is already coming true. To my surprise, his friend is a woman who is 28, 29 or so. I imagined I was going to be meeting up with two men in their 40s, and I was just going to kick it as the stranger in a strange land. Jake looks to be in his late 40s, and he feels firm, like he moves with purpose, and he really commits when he grips an object, a glass, moves a chair over. He helps me stash my suitcase under the bar before I can finish calculating the maneuver of where it ought to go. Athletic casual clothing, a face that has been met day after day by the sun. His friend, Emma. I learned she has a rich father who has bought her and her sister a large house in the Colorado mountains. She tans naked outside, owns a gun, and she's not afraid to take it out and cock it in the case of unwanted guests approaching her sanctuary while she luxuriates in the buff. She seems to occupy a charmed existence. She's beautiful, has short brown hair that fades into gold at the edges of her silhouette, and luminous clear skin. She lives without apparent resource or money issues. And this has granted her space to think, what more, who more could I be? She has decided on law school, to go into environmental law, to help the planet. 
She knows people that I know in Olympia. She has rolled on the grass, again, naked, after days of not showering, days of doing ritual in honor to Aphrodite, at once her most raw and ugly, and yet, I imagine her ugly can't actually fall that low, but it would still be glorious. I am able to learn all of this about her, without any part of her affect seeming excessive or self-centered, as she is just as warm and conversational and curious as she is revealing. She gives me life in a way that startles me. The conversation tumbles over to a recollection of a ski accident she had, but perhaps a year ago, not far away in time from Aiden's accident. It was a substantial injury with head trauma. She describes looking up from the ground, twitching. It was like, my nerves were like, she says, the light fixture, pointing above to a squiggly, wire-wrapped light bulb, a crooked labyrinth. Jake relives the shock of the moment, of tending to her, that he was terrified, basically cradling her, having to compartmentalize his own panic and switch into the gear of taking action, that he wasn't sure if they were losing her that day, that while she wasn't unconscious, she wasn't exactly able to respond. The risks that athletes take, I think, their larger adventures, their larger appetites, their risk of injury, that's so foreign to how I grew up. After Emma leaves, Jake keeps showing me around Boulder, takes me to a fancier venue with a spiral staircase and chandeliers, a patio full of Boulder social casual people dressed up, lip injections, wine. We drink more and I'm already in a flow of encouragement by the night to be interesting, to be engaging, to leave behind the very ominous rain cloud I have not been able to escape from, to offer up a narrative of myself that is absent of that major detail, to be curious about him. Late, he brings us back to the house, shows me my room, and says he'll give me a tour of the whole house tomorrow. There are many small touches and details, shampoos and products in the bathroom that are good organic brands, a high-quality kind of coffee setup, a memory foam-like mattress, a binder with a detailed guide. One can tell that every single touch is intentional. Jake gives me a hug goodnight, slipping his hands just underneath my vest and places his hands and the firmness of his hands I had recognized almost immediately over my hips, the small of my back. He pulls back, with his hands still there, and looks me in the eyes. Eyes I really notice for the first time are electrically blue. He says, Nice connection. And transfigures before me as a kind of lizard. The way I can see his pupils changing size, sharpening. I am very surprised at his way of touching me. It's bold. I don't believe I have been flirting tonight but an entire year of grief, suffering, and still tending to my own aliveness has made me steadier as a presence. I make eye contact. I drop in with people genuinely. I'm open to having fun. I wish for it. And I feel like a wanderer without a home, like home can be found anywhere in sparks of moments. And I have lost Aiden, and he was charming and friendly with everyone, 
and in my grief, I had sought to become like him and socialize better. So it's an experiment, and I see this moment with Jake as feedback of my experiment. And in this split moment, still embracing me, he asks, want to do mushrooms tomorrow? I burst into laughter. (laughs) Yeah. Electrified again that my intention to have a good time on this trip had been answered. Again. I hadn't even mentioned mushrooms. It's like the mushrooms just know. And while I don't know if I trust him yet, I trust myself. Chapter 31 The day-long interview process at Naropa is full of signals I don't belong there. But still I am attempting to appear like a candidate. It's transactional. I go through the whole experience. Parts I like, parts I don't. You give me the degree. Just hoops to jump through, and I think this is normal. But also, my goal is to at least secure the option of attending, and it is the only school I have applied to. We have a team-building group kind of test designed to test our teamwork skills, which I find to be an immediate threat. Because I don't like the activity, the assignment. I don't feel like I like the person who's assigning it. And I've never even met my teammates before. I get to go to an Aikido class, which becomes my favorite part of the Naropa day. I immediately love this teacher and find her guidance is refined. Every fiber of her body emanates purpose and her bare feet on the ground seem plugged into the earth beneath the padding that we do drills over. She shows us to deflect the energy of the opponent and send the opponent spinning in the wave of their own energy, like blocking a storm and sending it in a different direction. I go up to her excited after, tell her how much I love the class and if I came here, I'll definitely study with her. Her enthusiastic reflection is so immediate. She asks my name. I say, Sabrina Monarch. Is Monarch your given last name or chosen? Chosen, I say. She gasps. You gave yourself a royal name? Oh, I really want to know you, she says, as blue lights hover around her. In this moment, I've found an anchor of belonging. I'm in love, and I see the timeline opening up of my martial arts life. For this alone, I would go to grad school here. I would get up early in the morning for this. You can count me as a devotee. Then, we are guided into a contemplative practice in a meditation room. An older woman instructs us to have a soft gaze in front of us, but that we aren't to close our eyes and we can notice everything that we feel or sense, simply to be mindful of it. I enter into a different state, like walking through a thin disk of water. And here, while I may have anticipated something more classically spiritual or transcendent, thinking maybe this would mean I was doing it right, I am brought to think of Jake. I get a very clear vision that if I leave the night up to his lead, We will be having sex tonight. That is the momentum, say, of a carriage. It is a projected outcome. In a way, I was surprised by the way he touched my hips. This vision serves to prepare me in advance for what a naivete in me would not otherwise see. 
and the vision comes with a warning. I can translate as, you cannot be sleepy or disassociated or not with yourself. The situation is not a threat. He is not dangerous. But he does have a will pointed in your direction. But you need to meet him from a place rooted inside of yourself. You cannot be sleepy. You must be prepared. And as I see these things as a series of images, knowings, memories, a blue light hovers in the field of my soft gaze. The actual interview itself. I first wait in a winding line through a kind of art gallery full of visionary paintings to then be led into a dark room with the blinds drawn. Why the mood drama, I don't really understand. I sit across, chair to chair, no furniture between us. A woman with curly hair and glasses who holds my admissions essay in her hands. She is scanning it over, confesses, I haven't actually read it. And while I outwardly hold my composure and don't respond, an immediate internal voice of mine says, I can't believe she didn't read it. I labored over it. And strangely, this internal voice isn't even my normal inner voice. It's like an injection. But at the moment, I think, I can't believe she didn't read it. One of my ears rings piercingly. And she looks up at me from the paper severely, almost, I think, frowning. And then she looks back at the paper. Did she hear my thought? I wonder. It's not like I'm the only psychic person in the world. For all I know, this high-elevation-dwelling, spiritualist academic is likely psychic as fuck, too. You talk about astrology here, she says. That might be a distraction from your studies here. I refrain from getting too defensive and come up with something to justify my capacity to be multidisciplinary and explain how the counseling is something I seek to combine with my astrology. I don't remember a lot of our conversation, but I do remember a slight panic overcoming me afterward, and how I probably took myself into a bathroom stall to close my eyes and talk to the lights. I say to the lights, Everything is fine. I'm just scared. I probably am getting into Naropa. I'm qualified. And the lights show up, but I'm grasping. A deeper part of me knows I'm not getting in. The transference of this interview is too clearly negative and hostile. I arrive back at the Airbnb. How was it? Jake asks warmly. Honestly, I don't know. I'm a little exasperated. I say. The whole day had its sparkling moments, but it was also a whole day of trying to prove myself within an environment I didn't actually feel I belonged in, and yet it was my one plan, my only plan, to be there, and I was feeling jaded and confused. I let myself get kicked up in the windstorm of it, and also I'm excited that now is a clear divide in the day, like I'm leaving the 9 to 5 interview day behind, and now it's act 2. I feel provided for by the universe. Jake is also very willing to sweep me up into act two. He starts to make us sandwiches to pack to take to the cliffside rocks that maybe Boulder is named after. I don't know. Butter knife spreading hummus over the bread. 
The rocks are a scene. People of many ages, but mostly youth, beer, weed. It's like party culture, but in the outdoors, at the high elevation of high elevation, red rocks overlooking the city. It's endearing to me that people come here to imbibe. And as the mushrooms come up, there's a moment of feeling like I'm on a boat that's shaking on a choppy, wavy sea. Row sailors lifting up their beer. Everything's so precarious. Like even my own capacity to maybe go insane if I remember all this pain I can't resolve as hard as I have been trying to. But there's Jake here and he's like wooing me and I don't know how I feel and the sky is glorious and maybe there is more to life than the Sisyphusian boulder I have kept rolling and eroding into a pebble into nothing more than a slight irritant, the more perspective I can find to engulf it. It grows dark on the trail's back. I don't remember when he kissed me, but he does, and I remember it coming as an action from him, and not as something I was asking for, but more as an inevitability that I'd predicted. Not as something I was a no to either, but more like a maybe, like I'm curious. Like I'm hopeful that someone will replace Aiden or start to chip away at the dent. The night continues to progress like a ballet, a fireplace at his beautifully arranged house, his hot tub that overlooks a creek. I let myself be seduced by the arrangement of everything, the scenery, the ambiance, the pursuit, being the object of someone's desire, the recipient of someone's charm. But I don't really feel anything, besides fun, besides it being a good movie, a film. And my lips can lie, and my movement can lie, but my pussy can't. And I'm beginning to think of my exit, when he's the one to comment that I'm holding back, that I'm half-hearted, which almost sounds insulting, but it was true. And he said it in a gregarious kind of way, considering... But it contests the vision I had of his agenda, a vision I had which didn't include him tuning into my truth but just projecting his plan onto me unless I specifically intervened. So I confess, not a simple, you're right, that's not even an option in my nervous system, where I'm too scared to make him feel bad, where I don't know yet how to just own the truth simply without fluff. I have to explain, make an excuse, well... I was in love and he got a head injury and I was traumatized and I can tell he's not pleased, not really interested in playing the role, but doing his best and I don't really blame him because it's not that truthful for me to be telling him this anyway. We transition, our connection remains quite friendly and warm. On the bus ride from Boulder to Denver back to the airport, I'm ecstatic again, not because I found the next man to replace Aiden, which is what I thought I wanted, but because I had such a random, unexpected experience that reminded me I can't imagine what life has in store for me. It takes the form of imagining romantic chemistry as mathematical, that somehow, like an act of probability, my day will come. It's not even a romantic thought exactly, but it swells me back to a state of buoyancy the flight that I've been trying to return to. 